Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. On today's show, I talk with Amarjeet Chopra, the author of Managing the People Side of Innovation. Jeet facilitates innovation workshops and creative problem-solving sessions for some of the world's largest corporations. And let's face it, we can all get a little better at innovation. In today's show, you'll learn how to grow an idea, how we take an initial idea, which may in fact be deeply flawed, and transform it into a game changer. If you want to be the kind of leader in your organization that drives innovation, Jeet has a lot to offer. And I think you'll find his innovation practices go way beyond business. They can make you a better spouse, a better parent, and a better friend. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeet as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Jeet Chopra. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Jeet, welcome to The Good Life. Good to be here. I'm glad to have you on the show and excited about the topic of innovation and creativity. Many of us are facing this COVID-19 crisis. We are challenged with creative problem solving, with getting creative about how we solve business problems and challenges. It's introduced a number of challenges in our personal lives, and the need for creativity across the economic spectrum is just increasing. And so I thought it'd be great to have you on the show and talk a little bit about creativity and using our mind to solve problems and how we deal with ideas and work with others to solve problems and create solutions is not just a mystery. There's some science behind it and there's some structure and there's some ways that we can get better at it. So I thought I'd start with just talking a little bit about innovation and creativity and what that is, because those are big words and sometimes we put a lot into those words. So how do you think about innovation and creativity? Creativity can bring to mind all kinds of things from Picasso to Mozart to art and or scientists in a lab. But innovation really is applied creativity, applied to everyday situations, business, personal. How do you develop with some fresh ideas that offer us a better way of doing something, whether it be creating a new product or the way we organize internally or the way we act with our kids, talk to our kids and involve them. So it can be all those applied areas that you then begin to think of as innovation. And what I know about it is based on studies that first some partners of mine and then I did with invention groups where people in teams were under some pressure to either produce a new product or improve something or new process. And what we would do is rather than read books about creativity or theories about it, we just tape recorded these meetings. In the beginning tapes, eventually videotapes, and then replayed them afterwards and say, well, this meeting produced a lot of very good ideas and people were very excited about the result. This meeting, they didn't. Similar people, similar backgrounds, similar expertise. What was the difference? And it became very clear after a while that the big difference was how 
they were processing each other's ideas and what kinds of ideas they allowed to emerge. And what we also realized very quickly, this went way beyond what we think of as brainstorming. Brainstorming, everybody's familiar with probably. Essentially, one way of thinking about it is that brainstorming produces ore, not finished product. It's iron ore, let's say. And you have to refine it, smelt it, refine it, and then form whatever you want out of it, whether it be a, a better knife, sharper blade than you ever had before, or any steel product you can think of. But that takes work. So brainstorming produces just ore. And what we watched in this sessions that people had that were very productive is that, yes, they did that. And they did that very freely. Then they would take that ore and create and fashion what was useful ideas for their application. And that was the fascinating part, how they went beyond just brainstorming. Turns out that the creative side of the mind, as I said, produces ore. Typical brainstorming session, you'll put up a whole bunch of ideas and people will say, okay, we had a lot of fun, time to get serious. And somebody gets up with a pen and they start crossing things. Oh, wow, that was just a joke. That was a silly idea. Oh, I was just kidding there. And we end up with a few ideas that are practical, but they aren't very new. That's the typical brainstorming session. That's fascinating. So you sat in on these meetings, you recorded the proceedings, and then you went back and you looked at the meetings that had a lot of innovation. And then you looked at the meetings that didn't produce a lot of good ideas and innovation. And you said, okay, what was going on? And it sounds like the meetings that really produced a lot of good ideas and and the group made progress on innovation, that the key was how ideas were processed. So when someone shares an idea with us, we should think of it as ore or raw material that needs to be processed. And it sounds like there were people you observed who were very good at mining this ore or this raw material for gold. So maybe you could give us an example, a client or a situation where this process played out. I can give you an example of one session that I ran. It was not brainstorming. We did some in the beginning of each segment of the meeting. At that time, this is pre-digital era. It was a very large European company that made photographic paper. They were just entering the market in the U.S. They used to have these little booths where you could walk in, take a picture, and in a few minutes, you had a print. Oh, you were in a rush to go get your passport. You could do it that way. Come in, 20 minutes, you got your pictures. So it was that market they were looking at, the so-called mini lab, they used to call these market. They were brand new to the U.S. And they had next to zero market share. So the meeting was about how do we create market share and get off the ground here very quickly. And the manager said, you know, it takes time in a new business to get it off the ground because a lot of relationships are involved with these mom and pop folks that operate these machines, these labs. So let's have some ideas. Now, I'd asked him to include not just his marketing team, but people outside the marketing team. And this was somebody in procurement, I'll call him Joe. So we did a little brainstorming. I said, all right, let's get up some, whatever comes to mind. And Joe throws out an idea that everybody kind of laughs at, including the manager. They had, their company had just come up with strict, from the top, dictated 
we're going to stick to our knitting. That was the big mantra in those days. No acquisitions, no going outside to acquire anything. Going to do everything in-house. So the idea Joe threw out was, hey, why don't we buy the manufacturer of these machines, which was a big Japanese company that was the major producer of these. And so everybody laughed because AAA was directly in the face of what senior management had just put out as an edict. And B, how do you justify spending a billion dollars acquiring this company or more in a market in which your bottom line at best would, after it was fully developed in terms of their marketing plans, maybe, you know, your bottom line might be a few hundred thousand. So it was a very impractical idea. When I've been involved in brainstorming, I seem to get a lot of impractical ideas. That's one reason why I think people avoid brainstorming is because these are the kinds of ideas that come up. And then as a manager or leader, you're sort of in the situation of reminding people that it's not a great idea and almost gets a little awkward. So I think that's a great example of why we often avoid brainstorming. I think that's very, very true because it also puts pressure. You invite people, you get their ideas, you get them up, and then you have to reject most of them, which is not very nice. And so what we did, we did a little mini brainstorming, and this idea was part of that brainstorm. We had about, let's say, 20 ideas up. So I said to the manager, I had talked to him about how to process ideas before. So he wasn't coming in to the meeting totally green. And I said, now, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask you, Peter, to pick the worst idea up there, the least practical, not the most practical, because that's not going to be very new. He said, well, I don't have to think very much about that. Joe's idea about buying the manufacturer. I said, okay. So now what do you do with this raw ore? The process is very, very simple. The mind goes straight to thinking about what's wrong with the idea. All the obvious faults. We're trained to think that way. Yeah, that is so true. When I'm in a meeting and someone throws out an idea, the first thing I think about are the flaws. I think about why the idea won't work. I don't often go to the pluses. I focus in on the flaws. And I can tell you from experience, when you point out the flaws in other people's ideas, it doesn't often lead to innovation. So there must be something else going on with this technique you're talking about, where people can turn the raw material into good ideas. How do they do that? The trick in growing an idea is you don't forget about that. But you say, well, first, let's look at the obvious side of the idea. What's wrong with it? Let's look at the non-obvious side. We're not going to do this, but if we did something like this, what would be going for it? What's the potential advantages of doing something like buying this manufacturer? So I'd written up the idea on a flip chart, buy the manufacturer, in quotes. And one person said, well, obviously, they'd recommend our paper. A kind of seal of approval for our paper. Good, good idea. Somebody else in the room said, well, they have a sales force. It would expand our capacity to sell. Without adding to our payroll, we'd use their sales folks. Now, two or three usually come easy. In this process, you need to stretch. And creativity and innovation is always about the non-obvious. So what are some non-obvious buses? At this point, I turned to the manager. I said, Peter, your turn. Think of something that's non-obvious. What would it do for us? He thought for a minute, and then he said, oh, he said, we acquire relationships overnight. We're going to have to create relationships with all the owners, and there are lots of these photoshops, these photo labs, 
they already have existing relationships. So overnight, we acquire relationships, or very quickly. I said, terrific. Now, the flaws are obvious, right? It's not in line with our corporate strategy, get into trouble, and there's no way we could justify the cost. I said, those are the obvious things, right? Good. So now the question is, how could we keep these advantages some other way? Forget about acquiring the Japanese company. One person in the meeting said, well, we don't have to buy the company. How about some kind of uh, technology exchange relationship? We have a very good technology group. They have a good technology group. Some kind of exchange, some kind of relationship with the company. And somebody else said, yeah, he said it could be a marketing relationship. Wherever we're strong, we help them to market. Where they're strong, they help us to market. There's one of his staff members, let's call her Sue, just looking at the pluses that I written up on the board. And she raised her hand. She said, hey, wait a minute. Why do we have anything to do with this Japanese company at all? She said, in every town, every city in which we're going to operate, there are people who service these machines. These are independents or they're very small organizations. Why don't we acquire a few service companies? They have the relationships. At this point, the manager gets very excited. He says, oh, write it up. Let's not lose that idea. It's a terrific idea. I said, well, tell me why. He said, well, look, he said, not only will we acquire relationships very quickly because these people have them, but these local people, the Japanese company, their Salesforce people are not local. These are local people who have ongoing relationships. They see them very often. Their recommendation will be really powerful because they're the ones that come help them solve problems and they have technical difficulties. Terrific. At this point, people started to build more on the idea. They said, well, why do we have to buy any of these? Why don't we just put them on a retainer? And at the end of the year, they help us to really grow the market, share quickly, and we give them a bonus. That was the end point, end of the idea. And came out of this idea that was totally impractical. So that's just an example of how if you do some brainstorming, get the most out of it. Now, interesting thing is, when we were done with this idea, whose idea was it? Joe was sitting there grinning while all this was going on, because it was his idea that was being grown and built on, and he loved it. But whose idea was it? It belonged to the team, because everybody had gotten involved in the process. So the growing idea process creates room for other team members' ownership of the finished product, not just the person who produced the ore. Jeet, that's a wonderful example of taking a raw idea and converting it into something that's practical and has advantages. Just reflecting on it, there's very specific things you did in that room to keep that process going. Those behaviors, those questions you asked came from observing people in similar situations, people that you call in your book naturals, people that for whatever reason, when they're in a group or in a room, they are able to grow an idea. They're able to get people energized around ideas. And we've all been in meetings with people like that, but we've also been in meetings with people that love to shoot down others' ideas as quickly as possible. And that shuts down the innovation. So remind us again, what are the key steps that you did there in that example to go from a flawed, but sort of funny, crazy idea into a practical business idea that could be implemented? The first thing was to remind the group not to take the idea literally. And so what I do is, if I'm writing up the idea by the Japanese manufacturer, 
I put it in quotation marks to remind the group, we're not going to do this. It's just a starter. It's a baby idea. You don't ask babies to go and earn a living. <laughs> they can't do it. They don't have the skills. So it's a baby idea. Let's remember that. So now let me acknowledge right away. And I said to them, we're not going to be able to do it because corporate will get on our case and we could never justify. Okay, I know that. You know that, right? So you have to acknowledge what they're also thinking, what the block is in their head that says, oh my God, but how could we ever do this because? So yeah, we know that. So now let's go back to the non-obvious side of the idea. And that was if we did something like that. And again, I stress something like that. We don't know what it is going to be. So people need to be reminded. We're not at a point where we have to decide yes or no. We're in a grow mode, not in a yes, no mode. People sometimes need that reminder because the habit of worrying about and taking the idea literally is so strong. And that's part of keeping the idea from being just killed right away is reminding people of that, that we are in a grow process, not in a side process. And then to push people to think beyond the obvious pluses. It always point when you're doing this, listing the potential advantages, to stop with the first few and say, well, we did our job. Well, yes, let's push harder. When you push harder is when that non-obvious one pops up, such as what the manager said, oh my gosh, we could acquire relationships. Hadn't thought of that. That's a big part of what we need to do. And that's a time consumer. Then you go into saying, all right, how do we do this in a more practical way and open the door to growing the idea? Reading your book, I've practiced applying some of these idea growing ideas. And one thing that I find interesting is when I'm listening to an idea, as I go about my day with my team and working on my business, ideas will come at me. Sometimes it's not in a meeting, like specifically in your example, where you had convened a team specifically created problem solving. Sometimes you're going about your day and someone comes up to you and says, hey, Sean, got this idea. And I've been listening to the conversation in my head. As someone is explaining their idea to me, what, what often first pops up in my head is all the flaws in the idea. That's the first thing that almost by instinct, and I think there's a reason for that because I'm thinking about practicality. I'm thinking about budget. In this current situation we're in with coronavirus, there's a lot of fear out there and there's limited resources. And so you're thinking about the constraints. You don't have time for crazy, flawed ideas, or at least you think you don't. So as I see those thoughts coming through, one thing that has helped me in you know, reading your book and you're applying your ideas is that if I can just suspend that for a moment, that's the part of my brain that is being practical and trying to shoot this idea down and flip that to what do we like about that idea? That's the question I've been trying to go to when I hear an idea from an employee that has some merit but is completely impractical is just suppress the part of my brain that wants to kill the idea and ask that person, tell me more. Why do you like it? And it's produced amazing results. Yes. In your own mind, you can remind yourself I'm not going to forget the negatives I'm thinking about. Those are things, hurdles to overcome. We'll get there. But we need to arm ourselves first. What's the reason for trying to overcome those hurdles? What's the goal in this idea that we need to save and pull out? 
And so what do I like about it? What if we did something like that? Once you begin to see what the potential is in it, now you are energized to say, okay, now let's overcome the negatives. Let's take them one at a time. Now you'll find very often that if you, in meetings, for example, you go through the advantages and somebody will say, yeah, but let's not lose the negative. Okay, fine, let's list them. And you may end up listing six negatives of an idea, potential problems with it. What you need to do is to say, okay, which is the biggest one? Is it cost? Is it what? And people will say, yeah, yeah, it's the cost that bothers me the most. Fine. What's the question about it that you need to resolve? Is it how to make it cheaper? Is it how to get the customer to pay for it? Is it what? What's the question for which we need creative building on the idea? So once that's clear, what's the primary flaw? What's the big problem with this idea? Well, we don't have the physical capacity. So what's the question? How to acquire the physical capacity? How to find it somewhere else? What's the question related to the problem that you're seeing with this idea? The biggest problem first. I like the idea of attacking the biggest problem first, because if you can remove that, then you're well on your way of converting this into a good idea, right? That's the biggest obstacle that's preventing this idea from really soaring. So if you can address that and start creatively problem solving around addressing that problem, then it's the highest leverage point to convert that raw material into gold. Now, what you find very often is that the reason for focusing only on the biggest problem is we're not doing a pro and con. We're not measuring the pros versus the cons in a balance. We're saying, what's the biggest negative? What's the question about it that we need to answer? And you find more often than not that if you do this with one or two of the major problems that you had with this idea, the rest disappear because the idea changes. You're no longer talking about buying the pros and cons of buying the Japanese company. So any other negatives you might have had about that idea are irrelevant. So you find that you never need to actually work on more than one or two of your concerns. And because in the process of addressing those, you're changing the idea. It's growing, no longer a baby. Another aspect of the example that you just provided around the European paper company potentially buying a Japanese maker of the machines. You talk about in the book, any innovation at its heart, the value of the innovation is really only realized through execution. You can have a lot of great ideas, but if you can't execute, you personally or your organization doesn't get the benefit of the innovation. And to execute, you need people's hearts. And you say to get to their hearts, you go through their minds. There's several things there. One is that we are thinking animals. Descartes even said, I think, therefore I am. We identify very much with our minds and your ideas, your products of your mind, your concerns are also products of your mind that need to be addressed. But the products of your mind are not just something there. They are pieces of you. So what you do to those and how they're managed and handled is a very powerful way to make people feel good about themselves and to feel that they have ownership of whatever decision you make based on some of those ideas. 
The second thing is that we don't exercise our creative side of our mind often enough at work. We feel we don't have the time for doing that or our muscles aren't very strong because we haven't practiced drawing ideas. And it turns out that that having shared that experience of jointly engaging our creative side is both very satisfying to the individual, but it also creates team spirit. It's like going whitewater rafting together. Oh, look what we did with these ideas and how we avoided the rocks and we came through and oh, wow, what a trip we had. So it's an enjoyable trip for both the individual and the team. Yeah, it's a shared experience that people get jazzed about. There's something about creativity and innovation that brings out a certain energy or passion or zest. And if we can tap into that as a manager or leader, or even in our personal relationships with, as you mentioned, like in our families, with our spouses or our kids, people share ideas with one another. How we react can have a big impact on that relationship. In your example, the manager was able to involve, I guess with your help in that room, but was able to involve pretty much everyone in the room to somehow add a little value to the idea where the end product was, well, you couldn't really assign the end product to any one person. The ownership of the idea, to your point, was to the entire group. But the power of that in the next phase of innovation, which is execution, is not something to underestimate because as a manager or leader, you now have a group of people who feel bought in to this idea that they created through a shared experience. And you're going to find that there's their hearts are in it. They're more committed. And your chance of getting the idea out the door and executed and realizing the value is much higher. This particular meeting, it was a two-day meeting. This went on, this kind of growing of ideas was going on all the time. At the end, the manager had a business plan that people felt the same way about as they did with this one idea. It was their plan. Now, the second thing to think about is the meeting is just one thing. Okay, it was a formal meeting. We did it. It was good. The important thing for the manager was to, when he thought, when they all got back to work, they remember to keep doing this because people learn then that their ideas are safe with him. And so they will come see him in the corridor and say, hey, Peter, you know, I had this crazy idea the other day. Uh, Here's what it was. And Peter doesn't have to respond to it right then. He can say, well, thank you very much. Let me think about it. The, and sort of everyday exchange with people, as you mentioned, sometimes people will just come up to you and say, Sean, I have this thought. What do you think? If you don't have time to go through the growing process right then, you can just say, that's food for thought. Let me think about it. You don't have to respond right away. But if you are going to respond, keep in mind that new ideas are typically, if they have just come to mind, they're not going to be practical. That's usually what's missing. It's like the creative side of the mind says, my job is to give you something fresh. Practicality, I don't do that. You fix it. Remember that when it's a new, fresh thought, the only productive response is one that helps it to grow. Now, our classic response is, yes, but. 
We've all heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice idea, but that's just a polite way of saying it's, it's you know, the, <laughs> the idea is no good. Jeet, it's a very deflating thing to hear when I share an idea and I hear a yes, but it's almost like my heart just sinks. It's like, oh. The trick, Sean, is to create an alternative habit that doesn't say yes, but it says no, but. No, I don't think we could do it as given, but let me tell you what I like about it. That changes. You still are not pretending to like the idea or accept the idea. So you're not trying to be just nice. We don't have time for that. In the business world, it's too rushed. We need to do things. And you can't pretend that you like an idea. But the no but says, no, probably can't do that as you've given it to me. But let me tell you what I like about it. Here's what it would do if we could do something like that. A, B, C. Let me think more about it. How about you thinking more about it, too? My concerns, by the way, were, let's both think about it. How could we keep the good part of this idea, its potential? End of the story. So you can do this. In the corridor, you can do this whenever somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I got this. And other than that, no response. Either one that helps it to grow, which is the no but, instead of yes but, or no response that says, let me just think about it. It's just food for thought. Jeet, in your book, you spend a lot of time talking about ego and the role ego plays in ideas and idea growing. So could you share a little bit about that? Because our ideas are part of us, like it's your child, your baby, when you toss it out there. What happens in a classic meeting is if you sit back, the next time you're in discussion, it could be two people, three people, could be a formal meeting, could be informal. If you sit back and watch the action, you'll see this again and again. Person A will have an idea. Somebody in the room will say, well, we can't really do that because they'll give one sort of yes, but response to it. If you watch the person whose idea it was, you'll see a physical reaction. You'll see either the arms crossing or the person that is sitting in a chair leaning back or turning away. You'll see a physical response, an impact. As you said, Sean, it doesn't feel good when somebody says yes, but to your ideas. Now... What happens next is interesting also. You'll see that, let's say it was Jane that had the idea and it was Sam that gave her a big yes but. Jane will be quiet for a while or she may argue and try to sell her idea or she may just be quiet and she'll wait until Sam has an idea. And before she has even fully heard it, before Sam has even got it all out of his mouth, so that it's fully understandable even, she'll start raising objections to it and telling him why the idea is totally impractical, can't be done, it was done before, it's not new, you name it. And you see this all the time and it wastes so much time in meetings because the ego agenda is work is there and it's always at work. Every meeting always has at least two agendas. There is the task, of course, whether it's a formal meeting or whether it's an informal one-on-one meeting, you say, well, you know, I have this problem. Wondered, what do you think? Well, that's the task. There's always what I call the ego or looking good agenda. It's called enhancing yourself or protecting your self-esteem. Self-esteem 
is based because we are not just thinking animals, we are social animals. Other people's reactions to us and to our ideas are like mirrors in which we watch ourselves. How do I look? Well, other people's reactions to Am I really as smart as I think I am? Well, I look to other people's reactions to what? To my ideas, to my thoughts, to the products of my mind. And whether we're aware of it or not, it's always happening. And as soon as my self-esteem is attacked, or I, not necessarily the, the person who's doing it has no intention of doing that. They're just responding. But the impact on the other person's idea of themselves, oh, I'm not so smart after all. And once that happens, two things will happen in a meeting. The person will stop putting out ideas. I don't want to take the risk. Or they'll start attacking everybody else's. You have to repair the damage that was done. You have to maintain or protect and repair the damage that's done to self-esteem. So what's the moral of the story? Be aware for yourself. Let's just talk about individuals. When you're discussing things with other people, be aware of the tendency to play it safe. You have raw material. I don't want to put it out there because it's going to get knocked off or killed. Just be aware of that tendency to self-censor. Okay, you don't want to let them see it, fine, but don't lose it for yourself. Make a note of your own thought, mentally or on a piece of paper or whatever. Don't lose your own raw material thoughts. And for others, remember that it's okay for people to put those thoughts out. The most productive way of responding to them is no but, not yes but. Yeah, it's a very powerful concept to keep in mind that when someone shares an idea, they are putting themselves out there. They're going to feel vulnerable. Their ego and their self-esteem is going to be tied to that idea. That's just human nature. So how we react to the idea is going to have an impact on the person who shared the idea, their own self-esteem, how they're going to continue to react in the interplay and in the relationship. So nobody wants to hear that their baby is ugly. It's also important to remember when you're a boss, people come to you all the time and they're either not going to share any fresh thoughts with you or they're going to feel like great the way you respond to them. So do you really want people to be open to you and be open with their ideas? Do you want them to trust you with their babies, so to speak, or not? You control that. And so if you find and say to yourself, my gosh, why don't I hear more from my team? Well, look at yourself first and say, well, what do you do when they do give you something? How do you process it? And that can make a very big difference in relationship in how much they feel you're with them. You can be trusted with their thoughts, with their ideas. They can be open with you. So it's also just in your ongoing relationships with people, not just in meetings. Jeet, I want to go back to something that you mentioned right at the very beginning, which we kind of glossed over, but you talk about it in the book, which is in the brainstorming meeting, you immediately focused on the most impractical idea or the silliest, I think. And when that idea first surfaced about buying the Japanese company, there were a lot of laughs. Why focus on the craziest or the idea that gets everybody laughing so much? What is it about those ideas? They're often the ones that we, in a typical brainstorming kind of meeting, are the ones you just dismiss right away. It's in part, it's because 
that's raw material, that's ore. And usually the ideas that are seemingly practical already typically are not new. Their newness quotient is low. The highest newness potential of fresh, different way of doing something is usually in the ones that are not practical, which is why I very often say, let's pick some of the non-least practical ones and let's look at them first and see what happens. Now, sometimes, depending on how much people are feeling in the need to get something first quickly, it's okay to say to the manager, principals, or to the group, okay, we've got a bunch of these ideas. Are there any takeaways? Are there any practical ones that also have a little twist to them that are ready to take home? And they'll say, oh, yeah, well, that one, yeah, we could do something with that. Is it really new? Eh, not much, but yeah, yeah, a little bit. So let's identify those so people feel they can relax. Oh, we got something already. All right, now let's dig deeper. Now let's go for the least practical ones and pick one or two and develop them. But again, remember the development is for two reasons. You are much more likely to get a fresh new thought from ore rather than from something that is kind of relatively similar. If it's not new, it's going to be fairly similar to what you're already doing. It might have a small twist to it, but it won't have a big twist. And the second reason is that you do want to shift the team itself into the growing mode so that even when you don't grow ideas formally, they are doing it in their heads. They hear Sean say something that's not very practical, but in their heads, they know what they can do with it. So you just want the team to start behaving that way with each other also. And that's the other reason for formally going through at least one or two idea growing exercises very quickly in a session with the whole team. To give you an example of how these ideas might play out in a more personal way, in the last four weeks now, I've been sheltering at home with my family and my kids have been going to school digitally and online, getting a little stir crazy at times. And and next week is spring break where we normally would go do something as a family. And my son came up to me just this week and said, I sure like to go somewhere for spring break. Why don't we go somewhere for spring break? So it was an idea. And what did I do? I immediately shut it down. No, we can't. We can't go anywhere because there's these orders that we have to stay in our homes as much as we can, and we can't travel. We should not, to be good citizens, travel far from Seattle and gather with other people. And basically, my message was, sorry, son, that's a bad idea. When the idea that you don't like is what somebody else wants to do, then it is sometimes a better tack to first understand why they want to do that. The general rule is that if the idea is something that is offered for you, hey, I want you to do this, you can say, well, here's what I like about it, here's what I don't. But to grow that idea, the other person's idea, you still need a blueprint, which is the pluses and minuses for how to grow the idea. But the blueprint needs to be their blueprint. Now, question is, how do you get that? You could say, for instance, to your son, well, why do you want, you know, uh, what, what's the process of doing that? And he may just say, I don't know. I just want to do it. So the other way of doing it is to ask yourself, I really want 
to understand why this person wants to do something. Ideas end are ends to means. The kid wants to do that, what he's suggesting, for certain reasons. It solves certain problems for him. So if you first try to hear what those are, then together you may be able to create alternatives. You can do that by saying, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Why would you want to do that? Now, Sean, what would have, let's just go by, what might he have said if you had said to him, uh, well, we can't really do that, but, but first, let me ask you, why would you want to do that? Now, you have to watch your tone. You really have to want to understand what the other person had in mind. In other words, what were the ends behind the means, which is the idea they're suggesting? The tone of the way that you asked the question was one of genuine curiosity. But it can come across as, well, why would you want to do that? That's a more caustic negative question. It's a question that's shooting, that's closing the conversation instead of opening it. So I like the tone that you presented. But if I did ask that, he might say, gee, dad, I'd like to get out of the house, get out of the regular routine and environment of the everyday and experience something new and different and learn something and see a part of the world I haven't seen before. Something like that. Those are good points. Let's let's just talk some more about how else we might want to do that. Going out and going away is one way. What else could we be doing that might help either to do either one or all of those things? Or uh, maybe there's a whole set of ways we can attack each one of those things that you you wish to do. So let's just talk more about that. And that would lead you and him into a kind of problem-solving discussion and into an idea-generating discussion because now he may be more, much more interested in helping you because you've listened to him first. You've put yourself in the position of really wanting to understand where he's coming from, what are the problems he's trying to solve, and now he has told you what they are. Now he may be much more open to saying, oh, yeah, okay, let's talk about what else we could be doing. Now, you can offer some thoughts to him and say, well, well what if we did this instead? How about this? You wanted uh, to change the routines? Well, let's create some new routines that would be fun. What might that be? Yeah, I'm thinking now about this conversation. It's opening up some possibilities for potentially activities close to home or in our home city that are novel and new as going on a trip to San Francisco or going to visit relatives in another state. We just have to get creative about thinking, what could we do around in our own area that has that same sort of effect? Exactly. And these days, as you know, there are ways to virtually visit other people too. Things like Zoom, things like other kinds of ways of being with them, that can be fun. That you can have an occasion where you say, well, uh, invite some of your folks, uh, the ones that you want to see, either your friends or our relatives, but let's invite them in a sort of way that's also fun for them. Let's think about what might be fun for them to do with us. 
So the the key here, if I'm understanding correctly, Jeet, is that we want to understand why. And so we genuinely ask, tell me more about why you'd want to do that. Right. And you're, as you said, it's very important that your tone convey that you really are interested. And the way to make sure that you yourself really are interested is to keep in mind that what the other person tells you may change your mind. And you may say, oh, gosh, I hadn't thought of that. Maybe it is some way to let us do something like that and find a safe way of doing it. Because, gosh, I didn't know that it would solve these problems. The other thing you did, Jeet, is you said, and what else? I think that's important, too. Yes, it is, Sean, because... A lot of times what happens is that the ideas that we have our answers for, our means for, are very often not clear to us. Our mind jumps to solutions. And sometimes we ourselves are not very clear about exactly why we want to do something. When I push you to tell me a little bit more, you may surprise yourself by saying, oh, Oh, yeah, there was another reason why I wanted to do that. You know, I wasn't even aware of that. Good. Let's talk about that. How might we do that? By the way, which is the most important one? Which one shall we start working on? And that way you also start to get the other person's priorities and what they wanted to do. And they may be willing to let go of some of those priorities once they understand what they are. And so now they can understand, oh, I see, that's also what I wanted to do. You know, that's the most important thing I wanted to do. I think in in the book, you talk about really pushing your group to think about the non-obvious pluses. I mean, you want to draw out the benefits and the pluses of ideas, but get beyond the surface, the obvious, the surface level or the obvious two or three big benefits. What else is there? Because often the biggest benefit is lying there hidden. It just needs to be unleashed. That's right. And I think it's the same thing now because these, why the other person wants to do something are in effect the pluses of the idea for that person. That's why they want to do it. That's what's going for the idea for them. And again, pushing for one more, anything else, what more might it do? again, help them to become aware of that, in their own mind, hidden reason for why they wanted to do something. Yeah, because if we can identify those pluses and then find an idea, or together identify an idea that gets to that plus that we can both agree is a achievable and reasonable step, then it, that's a win-win. Yeah, and, and you may recall, Sean, that, that the... I call this going upstream. What I'm talking about there is that if we think of what happens in our minds as we solve a problem, the first thing is the end. We want to be able to achieve something. It may not be very clear in our minds before we jump to a solution for it because the mind works very quickly. And so pretty soon, very fast, we get from the end to the means very fast. We jump downstream. And what you're doing now, if in the stream of thought, the ends precede the means, you're taking the person back upstream to where the wish or the end 
that the idea answers. Well, gee, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on The Good Life. I've enjoyed it, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.